The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Amen. If you've got your copies of God's Word, turn with me to Hebrews. And um, if you'll just follow me to chapter 12 and the first two verses. Hebrews chapter 12. And verses 1 through 2. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. Now, I'd like to maybe add my, um, it's just my work in the uh, original languages here. I believe it should probably be more aptly read uh, as the NAS does. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As you know, this verse uh, comes out of the context of chapter 11, in which we have listed for us those who have gone before us with their imperfect, but, uh, with their imperfect lives, but lives that were marked out by God's grace in various ways, and they've been so affirmed in Hebrews chapter 11. Some would even call it the the Hall of Fame. Um, I, I have a hard time doing that as I read some of the names that are in there. But on the other hand, the reality is, is that all of God's people who are saints in Christ are also imperfect in their lives on this side of eternity. And uh, but that doesn't mean we can't learn from them. We're not in our we're not in um, the, the Christian church doesn't engage in a cancel culture because of the imperfections of the saints, although we willingly note the imperfections. But we do look at what happens when someone is focused upon Christ. That's what Hebrews 12 brings us to. That what you're looking for when you learn from those who have gone before is not to fix your eyes on them, but to fix your eyes on Jesus, the great author and perfecter of our faith, the one who went to the cross for the joy set before him, and he endured its shame so that we could be declared saints, and not only be declared saints in the in, in the righteousness that is imputed to us, but also be transformed so that we can grow in that grace with our eyes fixed on Jesus all the way to eternity. 
And so it's appropriate that this matter of saints be examined. So when we get to Reformation Sunday, uh, every year, it, it just doesn't matter ever since I've been, well, you know, what about this Halloween thing? Why is that there? And what's happening around Halloween? And why, why, why do we, um, why do we celebrate the Reformation so close to Halloween? Well, there's actually a reason why of the conjecture of these two, um, these two activities, why it happened historically. Now, most people know we do the Reformation because of what happened on uh, October the 31st when Martin Luther, as we were just so ably informed, uh, nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door of the castle, um, the castle church. That means it was a church that had been established in honor of the crown and, um, and that this particular city was one that was receiving benefits, most notably from one of the great princes who operated as a king. His name was Frederick and he becomes known as Frederick the Protector, as I'll refer to him in just a little bit. And uh, one of the things that he had done in the context of this castle church is he had, outside of Rome, the largest collection of relics that you could visit, and by doing so, making pilgrimages to these places with offerings and observations of the relics, then you could gain the merits that you needed in the sacrament of penance. So I put a number of things before you, and I'd like to take a few minutes to kind of work my way through it. Why is this, what, what is this thing Halloween? Well, it actually means All Hallows Evening. That is the evening that introduces the day of All Hallows Day. Hallows meaning another way to speak of the saints, all the saints. This particular holiday is hundreds and hundreds of years old. It goes all the way back into the um, at the, in the first three centuries after the um, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the martyrs that were dying for the faith throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, there came to be the practice of of certain ones that were martyred is to collect their bones if possible and bring them to Rome to be consecrated. And, uh, and so the idea of um, each time one was consecrated, you would name a day for them. Well, as you can imagine, the number of the martyrs that were given sainthood in their martyrdom uh, grew so rapidly and so much that um, after a while it just couldn't be contained. And so as they approached the 4th and the 5th century, and then eventually by the turn of the 6th to the 7th century, they just decided to do it all whenever they honored the saints, it would, they would do so all on one day. And um, and thus it was picked to be November the 1st, and the 31st was the evening of that hallowed day. And that's where it begins. In fact, there was a very, there's a church that was um, dedicated for it. This is kind of interesting, at least I think it is, but I'm a kind of a history uh, nerd on this stuff. Uh, the church where they would begin to deposit the bones was consecrated for that purpose. It was called the, originally it was called the Pantheon Church. And the reason why is this church was not originally a church. It was a pagan temple. 
It was built by the ancestors of a guy by the name of King Herod. Does that name sound familiar to you? Well, King Herod was a, Herod was an Idumean, and he and his ancestors came into power in the Middle East and Palestine because of the generosity of the Roman popes, I mean the Roman emperors, who were more than happy to have a puppet king to control that part of the empire with these troublesome, these troublesome lands that they had uh, secured, particularly this land around, this land um, of Palestine in particular, how to control it. And they would be rather ruthless and uh, pretty wise in what they did. And this guy's name was Agrippa. Now, later on, his, he would have a, um, uh, he would have one, a successor that you would know as King Herod the Great. And then would come his children and his grandchildren all throughout your New Testament. They'll be referred to. But, you know, these guys understood. I've got to stay. The only reason we can rule is because Rome allows us to rule. So if what you have, whatever you want to do, you want to, you want to learn how to honor Rome. And so one of the things that they did is that, uh, well, Agrippa did. And by the way, King Herod the Great picked up on this and he named a, an entire city for an emperor. And it's called, it's called Caesarea by the Sea. And then his grandson named a city up at, I mean, his son named a city up at Mount Hermon. It's called Caesarea Philippi. And uh, so you, these guys learned that if I put somebody's name on it in Rome, then I'm liable, they're liable to keep me in power. And they're going to send money to make sure those cities, we call those stimulus packages, we're going to send money to make sure those cities are successful. And he, they learned it from Agrippa himself and this was about um, this would be about 35 40 years before the birth of Jesus he built a temple in Rome for 12 gods and, and called it a pantheon to the caesars and then uh, as it was named uh, that pantheon years later as christianity began to spread and the roman empire kind of wanted to embrace it then a an emperor, in fact, a couple of emperors um, uh, were able to accomplish this. They took that pantheon and they gave it to uh, a Pope Gregory and then a Pope Boniface. And they then um, cleansed the temple of its paganism and then ordained it to be a church. And originally it was called the Pantheon Church. And they began, and they consecrated it to Christian service in 609, 609 AD. And that's when they began to use it. And then they named it the Church of uh, Saint Mary or Santa Maria and the Martyrs. And that's where they would bring the bones and that's where the official celebrations would be when they would consecrate someone to sainthood. Well, after the Reformation, by the way, after the Reformation, some of the Reformed churches said, it's good that we honor those who are saints in Christ who have gone to be with the Lord, but they no longer embrace the concept of individual martyrs being named saints. 
all of God's people were saints according to the New Testament, but they would still remember the homegoing of those who had died that year. And so the All Saints Day in the Reformed churches was a way to honor those who had left the church militant to go to the church triumphant. And yet they jettisoned the notion of sainthood by martyrdom or sainthood by um, by deeds of uh, by deeds of merit that go into the treasury of merit. Now, how does this overlap with us? Well, this overlaps with us uh, because of um, what has happened in the life of a man by the name of Martin Luther. Now, I'm not the first one to say this, but uh, so there have been more than one commentator, more than one historian. Most notably, R.C. Uh, R.C. Sproul has probably done more work on Martin Luther than most of his biographers. And, and I know some of you want to ask me, um, uh, well, who would, where, who should I read about the life of Martin Luther if I've never done that? And I'm only going to buy one book. Uh, if that's the case, you're only going to buy one book. There is no doubt who I am going to recommend to you. And that would be the um, the classic on the life of Martin Luther by Roland Bainton. That, that's the one you want to get. It reads, it doesn't read like a history book. It reads like a, a, biogra- a historical novel almost, but it is relatively pretty much accurate the research was good it's well written and you can really you would you would enjoy reading it um and it's called here i stand and um appropriately and you would enjoy reading it now there have been i cannot tell you how many biographies have written been written on luther but almost all of them are done by scholars that are either revisionist or they want to get their cut or they want to get their 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 little insight on it instead of just dealing with the facts in the Life of this man. So I still believe Roland Bainton's is the best one that's out there, and I recommend it to you. Now, um, and, and one of the things that's been noticed is, is that uh, to, to follow the life of Luther, God in his providence and Martin Luther in his lifestyle made it kind of easy because it seems like Martin Luther had some kind of a crisis every five years. Just about every five years, and you can follow him that way. That's a good way to uh, to put together his life as you try to remember it and work your way through it. He was born in 1483 uh, in a place called Eisleben, which um, providentially, I won't spend a lot of time on this, so I'll go ahead and mention it, in God's providence, that's where he would die. He would be dying, and he would die after a while. He would be uh, stricken uh, with either a cerebral occlusion that led to a heart attack or a heart attack that led to a cerebral occlusion. They had to take him down. I've actually stayed in the house uh, where he spent his last days. And uh, at the very end, he, um, he was in a coma. Now, um, this seems to be historically verified as his pastor made the trip to be with him at that time. Pastors need pastors also. And so his pastor came to him, and they could tell he was rapidly, through his breathing, he was rapidly coming to an end. So he awakened him by speaking loudly into his ear, and he said to him, he said, Martin Luther, or Martin Luther. Do you still hold to the gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ? And they said his eyes opened and fluttered. He reached for a breath and was able to simply say, yeah, 
Yes. And then in the moments later, he died. He, um, uh, but when he was born in 1483, uh, that was, that town had as its patron saint, Saint Anne. And, um, that was the name of the church where he was. His, his home was down toward the bottom of the town. It wasn't in the upper reaches where the people with a little bit more money. His father worked in the mines, but his father was very industrious. And his father actually got part ownership in mines and became somewhat of a self-made businessman. And he desperately wanted his son to escape the life of peasants and the lives of the workers and lives and the lifestyle of serfs. He Desperately wanted him to be set free from that. And so he was able to secure the money and secure the entrance. And Martin Luther, um, after his initial education, went to the University of Erfurt. And he went there to study law. And as you can imagine, he was an excellent student. He was advancing very rapidly in his career. And when he was coming home, he was coming home one night. And this is all very important to understand how these 95 theses uh, come to be nailed uh, on this uh, castle church door. Uh, when he was coming home, a, a significant, um, uh, almost cataclysmic, um, epical a uh, thunderstorm, according to Martin Luther, hit, and the thunder and the lightning surrounded him, and the lightning was crashing all around him continually to the point that he he knew that in any moment he was going to be struck. So he did what any good Catholic boy that had been raised in the church, and particularly in a city in which the patron saint was St. Anne, he called out to St. Anne, St. Anne. If you will save me, I will become a monk. And he survived. Well, Martin Luther was a man who was very uh, principled in terms of his understanding of law and commitments and oaths. So he, he immediately left the University of Erfurt. He then entered into... In God's providence, and here I'm going to stop just for a moment. In God's providence, he entered into a monastery. And it was not just any monastery. It was one that had, um, it was an order of uh, monks that had begun in the 12th and the 13th century. It was an order of monks that came out of a Augustinian study uh, curriculum. In other words, Augustine was their focus which you will find as you study the reformers, those who were converted out of their Catholicism, almost to a man, every reformer was converted while or after or alongside of being educated in an Augustinian uh, school. And uh, so it was with Martin Luther. He went into this Augustinian, very humble, very humble. And this is uh, the Augustinians focused upon writing and preaching as well as fasting, uh, as well as um, um, holding on to all of their rituals that they were to do. And they included hard work, minimal eating, uh, and always doing those things that would subdue the flesh. And Martin Luther would live in such a way that he himself would say, if monkery could save anyone, then I would have been saved by my monkery. 
That, that was, he was, uh, in fact, he was noted for these lengthy confessions that went on for hours to the point of frustrating uh, those who were hearing his. And in fact, one of them said to him, Martin Luther, please, the next time you come to take hours, give me some kind of a sin worth all of this. Because he would, his, his eyes did not stay on the page of the Bible long enough, and so he felt he had sinned against God. And he would, at least, he was so sensitive in trying, because as a lawyer, and only the righteous into heaven, how can I get there without being, uh, without being committed fully in thought, word, and deed to God's law? And so he was working his way to heaven. That's how he was going to get there. And obviously, he had no peace. But his abilities, his, um, in fact, he, he was named a biblical master. Uh, and so he even was teaching. He was translating the Bible from the original languages. Uh, he was um, into Latin, of course. Uh, he was doing studies. Um, he became... Uh, he became more or less a favorite academically, though he was a bother in the confessional booth. And, um, and so, uh, and so what happens is he rises up to the point that he, along with another student, was appointed to go to Rome. Now that had a lot of benefits. Because going to Rome allowed you indulgences allowed you access to all the relics and all the places to visit whereby you could get what was known as congruent merit. And so he was going to Rome. That pilgrimage was worth unbelievable merit, uh, merits in terms of uh, congruous. Now, not condign. That, uh, that can only be... Now, let me just try to explain this just for a moment. When you're, when you're baptized, then you're Christianized. The marks of Christ are placed upon you. And you are now a Christian unless you commit mortal sins. Now, once you commit those sins that are mortal then at that point in time, you have to be restored. Thus, a faulty translation of Jerome from the Scriptures introduced into the Roman church another sacrament called the sacrament of penance. You couldn't go back and get baptized again, but you could go to get the sacrament of penance. That would require your confession of your sin. That would require a heartfelt contrition for your sin as so determined by the priest. It would require the absolution for your sins. And then it would require your either contributing to the treasury of merits or drawing from the treasury of merits, which you can by pilgrimages, by indulgences, and by um, by relics. Well, Rome, you've hit the jackpot because that's the number one pilgrimage and the places you go are going to give you access to the treasury of merit and the place and what you're going to see. In fact, it was such a significant moment that Martin Luther even acknowledged um, in his writing of his letters that he was dismayed or, dis, or he was... Um, 
uh, he was, um, well, I think dismayed would be the right word, that his father and mother were still living. Because if they had died, his trip to Rome would have been dedicated to them and he could have, he could have uh, taken them out of purgatory and so that they would have been freed because of all of the merits that you accrue in such a pilgrimage. And of course his father and mother were still living so uh, he couldn't dedicate it to them so he dedicated it to his father's father, his grandfather. And so he was, uh, and so he was, um, uh, and that was in the year 1510. You get our five-year intervals now. 1505, Saint Anne save me, I'll become a monk. He becomes a monk. He rises up in the order um, at uh, there in the gut and um, the order of the Augustinian monks. He rises up to the point of being appointed in 1510 to go with another uh, colleague, and uh, there they went. To Rome, uh, his excitement was um, effervescent. He anticipated it. He couldn't wait to get there, and um, and this became probably the turning point in his life, because once he got there, he was utterly dismayed as he arrived at what he thought would be the greatest testimony of righteousness that would give him righteousness that he needed. When he got there, he was confronted with clerics who would see how fast they could recite the Mass to see how many they could do in one day that would get them more money as they were paid for the recitations of the Mass. And then he saw the sexual immorality of the clergy and the priest all the way up into the bishoprics. Sexual promiscuity, rampant homosexuality, all of those things that were taking place. And then he saw all of the corruption that was taking place in the administration of the sacraments and the greed. And he was really coming to a crisis of his faith, but he had one place he had not gone yet, and that was the Lateran Church. Because that was the church that you could get the most merits from in the treasury of merit. It contained, or it was said to contain, the steps that Jesus, um, that Jesus followed up into the Praetorium for the judgment in face of Pilate, that in fact they had been brought back and they had been put into this Lateran church and it was there that you could go and you could go up the steps, recite the rosary, do the Hail Marys, all of the things that you needed to do. And when Martin Luther got there, his his intensity, uh, his focus uh, was manifest as he got on his knees and went up each step on his knees, stopping on each one, kissing, kissing the step, uttering the various rituals, then the next one, then the next one, and then the next one. And when he got to the top, no one could hear him. He later wrote this that he stood 
said vocally, but not loudly. Who knows? Who knows if this is true? And he comes back disappointed. He had a professor who helped him in his professorship. For he now taught at an Augustinian school. It was the University of Wittenberg. And there in this school, he had risen up as the professor. In fact, he was pretty much the prize professor. He was the one that Frederick, whose money had established this school, whose relics were in the castle church. He became a favorite of Frederick because he was quite the speaker, quite the scholar, quite everything. And so he received the choice opportunity in the curriculum by conviction of his professor, Martin Luther. You need to teach the book of Romans. Here you see the Augustinian love for the book of Romans in the curriculum, now moving into the life of Martin Luther. And it is there that he began to work through. He arrived at passages, as I mentioned this morning in Romans 3.23, that by faith we receive a righteousness. He is in an unbelievable quandary. He would go from the excitement of what he's discovering to utter despair as he looked at the at his own soul and his sin. He was even asked one time, you must love God. He said, love him. Sometimes I hate him. He had no peace. None at all. Romans 3, this righteousness that is given to you by faith, and then the blessings that are listed In Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have what he had always longed for. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. These things were raging within him. And in 1515, it was announced that the indulgences that were being sold under quite the hawkster, a man named Johann Tetzel were coming to Wittenberg. Now this would require some, this would require quite some courage on his part because part of indulgences were relics. And who had the second largest collection of relics? Frederick, who was his benefactor. Where? Here in Wittenberg, Castle Church. And Johann Tetzel was just across the river. <clears throat> this would be quite the sales day because All Saints Day was here. Penance was needed. Relics could produce merits. Giving, remember the song that would be sung by Tetzel every time a coin in the coffer rings, the soul of a loved one. From Purgatory Springs. And Luther, knowing what was happening, there was a prince who had bought a bishopric. Not only bought a bishopric, his name was Albert. 
He bought a second bishopric, which was against Vatican law. He had bought a third bishopric, but to do so cost him, I may get my figures wrong now, I think it was 20,000 ducats, of which he had to borrow 10,000 from the bankers of Germany. And now he did not, he needed money to pay them back. So he got in on the fundraising with Tetzel. Pope Leo X was under, the Vatican was almost broke. And they had undertaken this significant building project at St. Peter's Basilica, which you can go and view along with the Parthenon Church, uh, if you, I mean the Pantheon Church, if you so desire sometime, uh, there in Rome. And they were needing money. Well, Albert was opening up Germany for him. Albert was opening up Germany for him and would support Tetzel. So basically you had a three-way cut going on the indulgences, to put it crassly. Tetzel got his cut, Albert got his cut, and Pope Leo X would get his cut for the treasury back in the Vatican. And thus whatever good motives that had been behind this sacrament of penance, it had now gone the way of corruption as other things as well, clearly. Not only false doctrine, but now the greed of men had taken over in the church, in politics, and in, uh, and in the local arenas themselves. And in 1515, when he becomes aware of that, he then begins to, uh, he begins to double down in his studies and in his writings. And he begins to take on this matter of penance in his classroom among his students. And then when it is announced that he is coming across the river, then Martin Luther decides to take this on in an academic debate. And so on October the 31st, on that night, he goes to the castle door and he nails the 95 theses. Now, as one uh, commentator said, or one biographer said, don't see this as an act of vandalism, because that's what you did with this door. It was the bulletin board for the city and for the college. And so he went to the door, and he nailed up the 95 theses. Nor was it an attempt to start the Reformation. It was a professor calling upon the Vatican calling upon the Pope, calling upon the theologians and the academicians to debate the sacrament of penance, to debate the matters of congruent merit, to debate the matters of, um, of relics and indulgences. That's what the 95 Theses were designed to do. And, and, to, and it was put in the language of the scholars. It was written not in German for everybody to read it. It was written in Latin. But remember, he's been teaching. His students saw it and read it. And when they saw it and read it, they then took it down, translated it into the common vernacular German language. And then they went out and they... Uh, there's this nice little invention that had uh, come by way of a man named Gutenberg with movable uh, type. And so they then got the printing presses run, and they say within a fortnight or within 20 days, the 95 Theses had been put into the pamphlet form and had gone throughout Germany, and an entire religious and political firestorm had started. 
And so when it gets to the Vatican, the Vatican calls for the University of Wittenberg to send Martin Luther for trial in Rome. But Frederick now takes on a name. And this is really interesting, given his investments in the relics. He had also been impacted to some degree by Luther. He respected Luther. And so he now intervened and said to the Vatican, if you wish to speak to my subject, send your debaters here. And so two debates happened after this nailing of the 95 Theses, one at Leipzig and the other at Augsburg. And the Vatican sent some of their best shot, (laughs) their best debaters. They sent a man by the name of Hans or Johann Eck, and he came to debate Luther. And they sent, uh, he was a German uh, priest, and then they sent a cardinal, Cardinal Cajetan, who was known for his academic prowess and his debating skills. And so Luther takes both of those on, and they have the debates. Now, Luther's not skilled at debating, and they, while they don't win the debates, as Luther keeps quoting the fathers who support the biblical understanding of the gospel, the, the older fathers, the more ancient fathers, and as he would quote the scriptures, they would not lose the debate. But what these two men were able to do was to show that Luther was rejecting the authority of the church and its councils and the authority of the Pope for the authority of Scripture. And so they labeled him formally in their reports that Luther is a Hussite. And they're referring to John Huss. Now, if you can allow me just to take just a moment here. When we get to this point in time, we all look right here at Wittenberg and we look at October the 31st and we say, there's the Reformation. But actually, it began the century before. It began in England, um, where you have, uh, you have great scholars, uh, who are vying for the um, for the truth of the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures to be understood and the access to the Bible and the Bible to be put into the languages of the people. And so you have a scholar at Oxford by the name of Wycliffe. And then you have a European scholar by the name of Huss. And so the two of them are are facing their own martyrdom because they believe not only that the scriptures should be interp- uh, should be translated for the people in their language because you're saved by faith and faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ and that it, the bible isn't just to be as it now was over the hundreds of years the bible had become isolated now remember, what was it, what, who was one of the earliest church fathers? Jerome, who translated the Bible in the language um, in the language of the day, which was Latin. 
And they would appeal, if Jerome could translate the Aramaic, the Hebrew, and the Greek into, uh, into, the, um, into the Latin for which we get the Vulgate, why can we not put it in the current languages of the day? And doesn't, the, doesn't God's word, isn't, hasn't it been given to get to the people, not only in preaching, but also to be placed in their hands so that like Bereans, they can examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. If an Ethiopian eunuch can get his hands on it, why can't the everyday peasants get their hands on it? And so Huss and Tyndall, and then they'll be followed, I'm sorry, Huss and Wycliffe, and then they'll be followed by Tyndall. Uh, so commit themselves to that translation. Now, um, Wycliffe, of course, translated from the Latin into the language. Tyndall will go from the original languages uh, into the language of the day, the English language. And, and Huss would not only argue for the translations to be made and given to the people, he will argue for the responsibility of private interpretation and why the councils and the teachers and the theologians of the church and even the Pope are of value and must be considered that private interpretation must must stand the test not of the church because they can err. It ultimately stands the test of Scripture itself. The Scripture interprets the Scripture. That does not mean we don't value teachers and councils and creeds and confessions and all of the great works of the fathers. But it does mean they're not inerrant. God's Word is inerrant. And in your private interpretation, you must submit your interpretation not only to the input from outside, but ultimately to the scriptures themselves. We call it analogi de fide. The scripture alone is our rule in faith and practice, and the ultimate authority over the interpretation of the scripture is the scripture itself. Thus, Hus is put to death, and it becomes a word of treachery in the church to be labeled a Hussite. But Huss, when he's dying, would make a prophecy. The name Huss, in its root forms, means goose. And he says, you may burn the goose today, but a hundred years from now, the swan will arise. And it was said, and Luther himself began to embrace that perhaps in God's providence, he was the fulfillment of that word. That's why if you go to particularly to any conservative Lutheran church, you'll find the pulpits shaped as swans. That he was the one that Huss was pointing to. That carried a lot of weight when, in fact, the Vatican labeled him with the charge of a Hussite. Now we come to our next five-year mark, 1520, in which with that charge having been labeled and the sin of private interpretation and the supremacy of Scripture and the declaration that councils and the church and the popes do err, 
Now that he had been maneuvered to those positions and it had become public now, and in his writing he would affirm that, now a declaration and a death warrant was given. It was given in the form of a prayer from the papacy. O Lord, arise, a wild boar is destroying your vineyard. And that's wild boar was Martin Luther. And now, Frederick intervenes again, and he arranges safe passage for a debate in 1520. And that debate will take place at the imperial diet, or diet, or diet of, well, some of you, it's spelled worms. This is not a new diet. Don't go out and buy it on the Internet. Uh, It's the diet of worms. It's an imperial, it's like a parliamentarian moment, except it includes all of the ecclesiastical authority of the Holy Roman Empire. And over it will be Charles V. And Charles V will reign over this. And on the agenda is the interrogation of the, of the priest Martin Luther from Wittenberg. So he left from Wittenberg. He has his friends with him. They come in a very small caravan, but everyone's looking for him. In fact, this may have undone him because when Charles V came in, the people were reverent and respectful when he came in. When Martin Luther came in, this looks like a New York ticker tape parade. They were cheering everywhere for him. Uh, they were, Martin Luther says he came trembling, but the voices of the people lifted him up as he looked to the Lord for his strength. And he had arranged, and Frederick, his protector, had arranged safe passage for him, which he did. And so the safe passage came, and the debate started on April the 16th, 1521. He arrived on the 16th. The first debates and the interrogation began on the 17th, but it soon became obvious this was not a debate The charge had already been made. The the decision had been made by the Pope. The papal bull was clear. The only way you avoid death is to recant. And as they challenged him in all of his books, they finally got to the end of the challenge on the 17th and said, Martin Luther, do you repent as they repointed to the books? He, of course, acknowledged that there are errors in some things. I can repent. But then they pointed to the particular books in the matter of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the supremacy and the magisterium of Scripture over ecclesiastical magisterium, and also over political magisterium. His voice went low, and it trembled, and he requested a night to pray. And so he entered into that night to pray. His life was before him. Am I alone, right? None standing beside him. Not only is this my life, am I bringing dereliction to an institution and therefore guilty? of blasphemous sin. 
And so he went into the depths of prayer. He was by himself, and we have from his own hand the prayer, or at least a distillation of it. That night he cried out, prostrate upon the floor, Almighty, eternal God, how dreadful is this world. Behold, its mouth opens to swallow me up. And how small is my faith in you. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength from this world, all is lost. Oh, my God, help me against all of the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beg you. The work is not mine, it's yours. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace, but the cause is yours, my Lord, and it is righteous and everlasting. Stand by me, O faithful and unchangeable God. I lean not upon man. It would be vain. But you have chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish your own will. Stand by me in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, who will be my shelter and my shield. Yes, my mighty fortress. You can hear the echo of our great hymn and his appeal to Psalm 46. Be my mighty fortress through the might and strengthening of the Holy Spirit. I am ready even to lay down my life for this cause, patient as a little lamb. For the cause is holy. It is your own. Through the, though this world be filled with devils, though my body, originally the work and creation of your hands, go to destruction in this cause. Yes, though my body be shattered into pieces, your word and your spirit, they are good to me still. It concerns only my body. My soul is yours. It belongs to you and will also remain with you forever. God help me. Amen. The next day he comes in in a settled spirit. It's not like most of the movies portray it. It's a confident, no boisterousness. But in these moments... He so declares that his conscience is bound by the word of God. That's the key. He wasn't putting his trust in his conscience. My conscience is bound by the word of God. And unless you show me from God's word and reason that my writings are wrong, unless you show it to me by scripture and reason, then my conscience is bound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. The place goes into an uproar. It becomes abundantly clear to the emperor he has to acknowledge the safe passage agreement with Frederick the Protector. Martin Luther leaves and just outside just outside of Worms he is quote kidnapped 
We learn, learn later he doesn't know. He thinks he's maybe kidnapped to be taken and to be burned at the stake. He is fully aware of the anger in Rome because when the edict of his death arrived in 1520, he burned it. I've stood at the tree in Wittenberg where he burned the edict in 1520. And now on, on April the 18th, as he is taken away, who are his kidnappers? They take him away and they lead him away to the castle of Wartburg. And there he is, there he grows a beard, he takes the camouflage of a tinker, and there in the coming weeks and months he translates the Bible into German, and in the translation creates the German language that they still enjoy today. And upon finishing it, he hears of the uprisings, and he goes out among the peasants in order to minister and to quell the uprisings that were insurrections and to bring the gospel preaching to the churches. And thus the movement of the Reformation captivates Germany. And from there it will captivate Switzerland with Zwingli. From there it will captivate France and Switzerland with Calvin. And from there, Scotland with John Knox. And from there, England with Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley. And thus this great Reformation movement goes, built upon earnest prayer and the authority of God's Word. Sounds like the book of Acts to me. We must not neglect prayer and the Word. And now the church is recaptured. Oh, it's got a long ways to go. It's got many fights and many debates that are going to take place. But the confessions are going to be developed. And the authority of God's word is going to be established. And biblical magisterium will reign. And reform will come to the church in worship, in the sacraments. The Bible placed in the hands of the people. Now worship is done by participation, not spectatorship. Now all of those things are taking place because of this movement, but here I stand. I can do no other. Well, I'm out of time, but can I just give you just a little uh, P.S. that doesn't fit into this moment? But he does live on. And he goes back to Wittenberg, finishes out his life there, does a lot of traveling, obviously a lot of writing. He, he publishes two commentaries on Galatians, one on Romans, um, one library that I know has 96 volumes of what he wrote. And uh, it is, uh, it's amazing the productivity this man has. He was not a perfect man. He was an imperfect man, just like all of the reformers. We have only one perfect Savior. But he was a man who was, um, he was a man that was tempestuous. He was a man that was tender. Some nuns left their convent and they showed up at Wittenberg and they asked Martin Luther to find them a husband. <laughs> we can now get married and we're not losing our soul. So he got them all a husband out of his student body and his clerical friends, except one. 
she was a hard case because she wouldn't take anyone he brought. She said, I want you. Her name was Katharina. Katharina Katharina was uh, quite the woman. He nicknamed her Prime Rib. They had children. Read the biography. If you want to read something tender, read how Luther held his daughter Madalena with her last breath as she was dying, 13 years old. His tears flowing. And she is wiping them away and says, Father, I am going to my heavenly father. Don't weep. It was an unbelievable moment for uh, Martin Luther and his son, Hans, whom he named for his father. It was, uh, it's, it's, there are so many stories in his life that you've got to study and you've got to know and you've got to follow. But what you need to see is when we look at the reformers, the hero is always the savior. And the pillars are the word and prayer for the proclamation of the gospel. God, thank you for the moments we could be together. Thank you and we praise your name for all of the blessings that you bring to us. Thank you for those who've gone before us. We rejoice to learn from them. But again, Lord, we don't want to live in the past, but we do want to learn. Help us to live today so that the stories in the future will be about the glory of Jesus at work in his church in this day, in the times that he has brought to us. I pray in Jesus' name, who is able. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.